Welcome back to another episode of Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where today we are going to talk about the Emma Stone movie, well, the Yorgos Lanthimos movie starring Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe and Rami Youssef called Poor Things. Uh, this movie has just come out in a limited release. It is actually possible that the way that uh, when this episode comes out, it will be coming to your theater on Friday. Originally, we uh, we both live in pretty large. We both live in larger cities, so we were able to catch the limited release of this, uh, and the wide release as of the recording of this introduction has not happened yet. So. This might make it to you before the movie. Uh, that said, we go full spoilers pretty early into this movie. I would say, or into this episode, I would say that most of this episode, we, we're still pretty good about keeping things spoiler light, but the way that uh, early on, there's some, when I'm recounting the plot of the movie, uh, I do not think that it's possible to talk about the plot of this movie well without spoiling a very, very key fact about the movie um, that I think I was better, I think was better to not know going in. So I will say right now, we both would recommend this movie. And uh, if that is enough for you, I recommend you go see it and come back and hear what we have to say later. Otherwise, as long as you are okay with spoilers, this is a spoilery episode, or at least it is an episode where we don't give proper spoiler warnings after the very, very first one very early in. So do keep that in mind. Anyway, I'm excited to hear what... Uh, I'm excited for you guys to hear this one. Uh, I'm excited to listen to it ba listen back to it, as I always am. And... I am just as excited for you guys to hear some of the score by Jerskin Fendrix in uh, For Poor Things. This is Bella, which is such a weird song, and it's a recurring motif in the movie. And I think it really captures a lot of the vibe that this movie uh, portrays. I think it's just such an excellent, excellent theme, motif for the movie. And I really do have to say, we don't talk about it that much in this in this episode, but the score by Jerskin Fendrix is phenomenal. And it's actually up for Best Original Score at the Golden Globes as I'm recording this. It could be up for more down, later down the award season. So, uh, you know, potentially look out for that. There are a lot of really good scores this year, and this is one of them. Here is Bella by Jerskin Fendrix. Another episode of Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where uh, I'm not sure what to talk about with this one. I guess like, what do we talk about on this show? Sex and movies? Not nearly as much as you'd think. No. I I I, I like. I am much more active on Twitter than I want to be, which is still not very active, but it's too much. 
And like, there's so much discourse on Twitter about how sex in movies is bad. And it's so weird. Like you would think um, you would, based on how much discourse is, there is on it, you would think like literally every Hollywood movie is just a hor- is just the horniest movie ever made. But like of the movies we've talked about this year, how many of them even have sex scenes? Not that many. They exist. Like Oppenheimer has sex scenes, but like I don't think I don't think a lot I don't think a lot of the ones that we not talked much about of did. A sex scene. It's and it's like it's <laughs> it's not a sexy sex scene. It's more no. like it's very It's a plot driven sex scene. <laughs> very plot driven. <laughs> I was watching a red letter media video and they were talking about how uh blockbusters seem to limit sex in like big movies or there's like not even romance in big movies they're trying to limit it as much as possible which i'm not entirely against because i think some of the movies some blockbusters definitely seemed oddly obsessed with um you know like leading men having women like jump for them in random for random reasons um but also like i think it's interesting how uh it does feel slightly sterilized in some ways too uh like i think eternals was the only marvel movie that had a sex scene in any in any form and if, like, if you could sex, even call it a sex scene. sex scene is a very like charitable thing to call it i think they like they did slightly more than kissing it's like it was yeah. it was the most Eternals was maybe this maybe the horniest Marvel movie, and it's still like one of the most sexless movies of the year. Like, no, <laughs> I think I think ha- like it was probably the least sexy sex scene in a movie I've ever seen. So I think like like it actually brought it lower than Marvel movies without any sex. <laughs> so take from yeah, that I'm, what you will. Yeah, I mean like. I don't know. I was just saying Eternals might be the horniest Marvel movie, but first off, it's not horny. I don't think it would count as the horniest Marvel movie by any stretch because Captain America, the first Avenger exists, which doesn't have sex scenes, but like even that is hornier than Eternals. Yes. I would say Chris Evans (laughs) being revealed sweating in like, uh, from his metal tube, um, (laughs) was probably, (laughs) And Peggy Carter slightly touching him was was definitely a lot sexier than uh, whatever we saw in Eternals, which was them on a rock and like, <laughs> and it was all gray and there was some slight moaning and that's it. So, uh, you know what? We don't do this very often. I'm going to put out a call to action. Uh, what is the horniest Marvel movie? Tell us, tell us in the comments, email us. You know what? Email us, message us on Twitter. Tell us the horniest Marvel yes, movie. We I would love know. to hear it because I genuinely don't know which one you would. You could pick any of them, honestly. You could pick you would any probably of them. Be right. Like, yeah, yeah, because I feel like they're all equally. They're all equally horny, <laughs> which is not. Which is not, yeah. Um, but anyway, but the movie we're talking about today is quite the opposite in that. Yes, it's a much hornier movie. <laughs> yes. Um, and that movie is poor things. Duh, um, we, we, uh, we're talking about, I, I didn't realize this is the director of the favorite and yes. his name is escaping me right now, but I know you know it. Yorgos Lanthimos. Yorgos Lanthimos. Okay. I'm not gonna, anyways, the. I, I really like the favorite from what I remember, and that was also a very um, horny movie from what I remember. I would, I would almost be willing to argue that as much as this movie has way more sex in it than the favorite, I think the favorite might be a little hornier. Yeah, I'd say, um, the favorite's a lot. I mean, it's kind of funny, but it's definitely a lot darker. Um, in terms of the use of sex, like as, mm-hmm. as power, essentially. Whereas this, this movie, it's like it's very, um, it's very playful. In an odd, like, I mean, it's dark. I'd say it's dark at its core, but it, it comes off very playful in the movie. If that mm-hmm. makes sense, um, for reasons we'll get into later. But yeah, no, the favorite, the favorite's a um, a great movie, and uh, I don't know why I never watched it again. But yeah, it it it. Definitely, you can see a lot of the themes 
carried on between these two movies. And I don't know what his, I don't know if you've seen his other movies, but um, I have to ask if you know whether they also use similar themes of sexiness or horniness. Um, he's, I'm not sure. Like all of his movies sort of like, it, it comes through in all of his movies, but I would almost describe some of his earlier movies as like, or the other two movies I've seen by him as like much closer to actually much closer to this movie and how they portray sex. It's like, I wouldn't say that the sex in this movie is sterilized, but it feels very clinical in a lot of ways. Like it's either playful or like very matter of fact, because in this movie as well, like the main character's approach to sex comes from the fact, well comes with a lot of the context that she was raised by a surgeon and in his other movies, like the sex in those movies is very, it's almost like stilted. Like a lot of the other two movies that I've seen of his are the lobster and the killing of a sacred deer. And those movies, the way that the dialogue is in those movies and the way the characters present themselves is very, I mean, to say it again, stilted and very like, they feel very sterile and matter of fact, almost like they're, it's like the kind of thing that you get when you are reading from a script and you're not trying to emote into the script. You're just like reading the script, but like with the right director going for a certain vibe that can really work. And it does in the lobster and the killing of a sacred deer, but it always feels very strange. And, like, this movie doesn't quite do that, but it sort of achieves a similar thing through, um, basically through the, like, personalities that it sort of imbues those characters with. Mostly through the context that, like, the main important characters in this movie are all doctors. Yeah, I, like, there's, I mean... They're, they're doctors, quote-unquote, just because I think the movie's so fantastical that... Um, I mean, they're, yes, they are doctors, but the, this movie takes a lot of liberty in defining what... Um, I mean, it. how do I say it? it? It It's grounded, yet also extremely fantastical. I'd say the themes are very grounded, and the world at its core makes sense, but there's also a very magical... Uh, surrounding to it it definitely it feels like a fantasy world that someone would write about in the late 1800s like yeah like like a vision of the future that you would have in 1850 yeah yeah like those um i don't know like like those movies they would make about the, what, what's what's that one movie metropolis or something yeah yeah from the yeah 1920s. like kind of like that right where it's like the the technology is so advanced it's almost like fantasy you know at that stage mm-hmm. um but yeah it's there there's a lot of i mean it's just this movie's very weird i don't know yeah. again i don't know what his other movies are like but it's shot weird it's acted weird the dialogue's weird um there's like a very a lot, there's a lot of creative shot choices as well and um, I don't think it ever gets in the way of the story, um, which is just really cool. Because I remember the favorite was definitely filmed, at least from what I remember, it was filmed a lot more like a, a historical drama. Although I will say for the favorite, like at that point in my life, I didn't really like period pieces and I haven't like exactly come around on them. They're still not my favorite genre, but I remember watching the favorite and being like, this is a period piece that doesn't feel as dry as the period pieces that I'm used to. Like it was, it Mm. was shot in a very, I'm going to say unconventional way for that genre, even if it was much more grounded than this, for example. Yeah. It's, which I, well, I I think it fits because I think, I don't know, is the favorite beast on a true story actually? It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So it makes sense. Um, But I'm happy to see like the director really, stretching and I, I i can't say i've seen a movie like this before i feel like i've seen yeah. movies like the favorite before which isn't a bad i'm not saying that's a bad thing but this is definitely on its own uh two legs in terms of directorial style i'd say 
I mean, we'll talk about it later, but I think the story has a lot of inspirations, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, at first, but at first glance. But um, do you want to tell us a little more of that story? So Poor Things is, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is Frankenstein. It's very, it's very Frankenstein-esque. Uh, it's about a woman, Bella Baxter, who is uh, sort of raised as the daughter of a um, character named God. What is what is his name? It's uh, Godwin Baxter, Willem Dafoe's Godwin Baxter, who is a experimental surgeon who is always like he's always like mixing animals together and like t- you know he. He'll like sew animals to each other. So he's got like a a bird running around his house that's got the body of a chicken, but the head of a pig. And he's got a bunch of those kind of things around his house. Um, anyway, Bella Baxter is a person who it's a court. She's a, she is a person who he found who had just committed suicide who I feel like this is giving away a lot. So like already potential spoiler warning here because I didn't know this going in and I think it was a better experience to not know this going in. So soft spoiler warning here. We have to talk about this in order to talk about the movie. But like, if you want to go into this movie completely blind and I recommend that is a way I recommend seeing this movie, you should already stop here and just go see the movie. Anyway. Uh, Bella Baxter is a person that he found who had committed suicide, but she was pregnant uh, and the baby was still alive. So he delivered the baby and then transplanted the baby's brain into the full grown woman and reanimated the woman so that she was a full grown woman with the mind of a child and then like raised her to see what would happen because he uh, values experimentation above just about everything else. Like he'll talk about, uh, he's got this funny recurring joke where he'll talk about the awful ways that his father abused him in the name of experimentation. And he always frames it as a good thing. Like my father found out some very interesting things from the experiments that he performed on me, uh, on which, which made me lose the use of my fingers. Um, anyway, This movie is about Bella Baxter sort of growing into her own and sort of learning about the world uh, through as, as a woman with the mind of a child. And it's very much just an examination of like, it's, it's like a, there's a lot of examination of like philosophy and societal constructs and contracts and just, you know, exploring those in the uh through the eyes of someone like just learning about it i think basically the way that i would sum up this movie to my friends is like try to explain you know try to explain why you um why you always put your finger up when you when you drink tea like why you put your pinky up when you drink tea and why it would be considered rude if you didn't like explain that and see if it makes sense and that's a lot of what is in this movie is she'll encounter a societal norm and sort of have to work and figure out over time, like, is it stupid? Is it not stupid? If so, let's get a real good argument for both sides. I'd say the, the for me, I, I thought the biggest, I mean, Frankenstein, obviously, that's, that's a very direct, but it reminded me a lot of, uh, Forrest Gump as well. It's like it's like Forrest Gump, but like very dark and oddly like depressing. You know, in some ways, you know. Um, but yeah, there was I, I okay. I'm not gonna lie, because I did also didn't know what I was going into when I first saw it. Uh, I thought it was just gonna be a movie about Emma Stone playing someone with that was had Down syndrome essentially the whole time, but was just like you know very very pretty um and i just i hated it because i was just like it made me think of uh tropic thunder's uh simple jack joke Mm -hmm. um which is just like and i mean like obviously there 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 are other movies that have done that but i think it bothered me at first because for the first 10 or 15 minutes it was just like 
what the the whole movie was like emma stone is doing something really really weird and people would laugh and i was like the whole movie for like 10 or 15 minutes and i really didn't like that i thought that was like terrible but once the reveal happens then it starts to get interesting where you're like okay no this isn't this isn't just emma stone acting funny there's like there's like a very well i mean i think i think it the result is the same but i think the context at least makes it not as uh cheap if that makes sense it feels like cheap humor at first yeah the the context really helps because it's it's sort of like I mean, first off, as soon as you get the context, you also get the promise that she's not just going to be acting stupid the whole time. Like, she's going to be learning. But also, but, like, once you have that, yeah, once you have that context, like, all of a sudden, her actions make sense. It's not just, it's it's not just simple Jack. Yeah. (laughs) I'm, I'm still kind of amazed at how much that has affected my view on, on, on playing someone uh, with that, like with Down syndrome for an Oscar win. Um, because like, yeah, that, that was my first thought. And I thought it was just like, Oh my God, Emma Stone's like really like trying to do simple Jack here. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, again, like she kind of, it's the same thing, but it's like, it's just the context helps and it makes it interesting. And, um, I do, I am kind of weirded out, but like by the world because i think it's so odd that every like they both know willem dafoe and his assistant both know that she is um basically a toddler in a woman's body but then they have a discussion specifically about whether they want to bone her (laughs) like like and it's not they they talk about it very scientifically you know which kind of makes it funny but that's why like the movie is like when you actually think about it, it's it's honestly a very dark movie in some ways. Like essentially her father figure was like, I think he says that like my paternal feelings for her seem to have overcome my sexual desire or something, which is just such a weird thing to say from her supposed father figure in the movie. Yeah. I mean, he also does say that he's basically a eunuch because his dad experimented <laughs> on him as a kid. That's true, yeah. Uh, I mean, this this movie's very dark, so like, yeah. as, as we keep saying, but like, yeah, there, there's that too. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really strange. Like, as soon as I found out that uh, actually, when I was watching this movie, I had my own like, little emotional journey because as soon as I found out that she was the mind of a child in side the body of emma stone i was like should this be raising a lot of red flags right away when mm-hmm. like when this movie suddenly becomes very much about sex uh but i think it's it approaches that in a really interesting way and also never and it, it never makes it feel like pedophilia which is good <laughs> um, i mean <laughs> i don't know if it's I mean, yeah, I guess it's good because it never makes you feel uncomfortable. But when you, when I do stop, to, it's like one of those things where it's like when you stop to think about the movie, you're like, what the hell did I just watch? You know, like, also, like, I don't think that was yeah. okay. But yeah, go, sorry. Go but ahead. there, but that is like a big theme of this movie, which I really like is that, you know, very early on, the moment that they have that discussion about literally just boning Emma Stone, like when they have that discussion, it sort of puts you in the audience there like, oh, well, we're all thinking it. Like, we're all thinking this is a potential way this movie could go. Is this even okay? And, like, when they're talking about that, like, they're working it out for themselves, like, with their stuff. But having that in the script and having that that dialogue there uh, raises interesting questions. Like, a big theme of this movie is that every single man in Bella Baxter's life wants to control her in some way. And sex is always an element of that. So when those conversations come up, a natural part of that, like it it naturally feeds into the themes of this movie with like um, about, you know, questioning all of these things that come up. I mean, specifically this movie is in large part about questioning societal norms and one of those societal norms is like 
the place of men and women in this society. Yeah. And a big component of that is their relation is like each sex's relationship to sex. Yeah. I, I wonder if, um, like, I think, well, I think that conversation, like as much as I kind of don't like it, I think it, it does really kickstart the movie in, in terms of the themes. Right. Because, I think having that conversation just makes you realize like, okay, it it puts you in the mindset of like, okay, this world is just weird. It doesn't make sense. Um, And it also, uh, I'd say, I'd say like after that conversation we see, because that, that that conversation is actually, it's a dark conversation, but it's hilarious where Willem Dafoe's talk, he goes on kind of a monologue about how like it would take like what the, it would take the electricity of like the entirety of Eastern London to make him feel anything in his genitals or something like that. Like there's, and then like, I think that's, first of all, that's when that uh, him and his assistant, I think their dynamic starts to work after that. Mm-hmm. Because at first I didn't really, I thought that whole, the whole group was just weird because it just felt like, like weird, weird father figure. Emma Stone's just um, acting childish and people are laughing at her. And her assistant's just kind of the straight man being like, whoa, like, what's going on, you know? Um, but once we realize that everyone in this movie is insane, <laughs> it kind of makes it work better and it sets the tone for the rest of the movie. Because when Mark Ruffalo comes in, uh, and he is quite a character in this movie, he comes in a lot more organically because you're already kind of in the mindset of like, you know what, like, I'm not, I'm not going to try to make this movie make sense. It's ridiculous. I'm just gonna let it go, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think uh, personally, I think Mark Ruffalo is what made this movie work a hundred percent, in my opinion. I thought I think once he comes in, the movie becomes alive. Specifically after that conversation, too. Yeah, I think well, the Willem Dafoe being insane and his assistant being like, like, why would you think that's normal to do? Was also a funny dynamic that was added in later. Well, I think that um, I think that that conversation that we keep coming back to, uh, I think that what really one thing that really works about that is up until that point, the dynamic you have is kind of what you said, but it feels like it feels like Willem, you don't understand Willem Dafoe's relationship to Emma Stone. Like, is it is it just a weird father figure or is there something else there where he's like keeping her trapped or what's going on? And like. Because uh, Max McCandles, the uh, his assistant, also doesn't know very much about either of them, and he doesn't know what's going on. That relationship feels hostile, like everyone is keeping secrets from each other. And the mm-hmm. moment that they are no longer keeping secrets from each other, that whole group kind of becomes a team. And that's yeah. when they introduce Mark Ruffalo as the bad guy, who now we have like three people that are like, sort of one group and here's yeah. this guy coming in. So like yeah. it makes it it makes it a lot easier to accept a, th- a fourth character in there. Yeah. Yeah, and I I mean the whole plot point of Mark Ruffalo literally just being like, "Wow." <laughs> like like wow, they want to they want to basically imprison her. She must be a, quite a woman. <laughs> and then basically taking that and and assuming this is the 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 most wanted woman in the world and completely falling for her. It was absolutely hilarious. And I think it's a joke that could have worn out quickly and like a lot of other writers or directors hands, but they keep it going for like an hour and a half and it never grows old for me. And I only wish we got more of it later in the movie because I think Mark Ruffalo, I mean, I've never, I've never hated a performance from him, but I've never truly like, I feel like I've never truly seen Mark Ruffalo act like really challenge himself. You know, a lot of his characters that I've seen seem like, you know, it's just Mark Ruffalo, you know, where this was, uh, this was a character. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking like spotlight Zodiac dark waters, good acting from Mark Ruffalo, but they're like, I mean, all of all three of those characters are functionally journalists Two of them are actually, well, one of them is a journalist, one of them is a policeman, one of them is a lawyer, but they're all basically doing desk jobs and 
their very cinematic desk jobs, or at least their desk jobs that are portrayed as main <laughs> characters in movies a lot. But just, they're like... <laughs> you just single-handedly outed Mark Ruffalo's agent's strategy <laughs> for the past but, 20 years. But the thing about those three movies, too, is like, those are movies where the acting is definitely important, but the main... The acting serves to sort of boost up a really, really well done story that's really at the center there. Like, I would say that the real standout performances of Zodiac are like Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr. And even they aren't, like, they're kind of characters, but they're also, like, the only real character characters in that that movie. Um, Where in this, like... Mark Ruffalo is not playing a journalist. He's playing someone wild. Like he actually yeah. is playing someone who it's actually really cool. And I think the reason that the, um, that the joke doesn't wear out is his, I, I, this is not an original thought. A friend of mine said this in her review. Uh, Mark Ruffalo's character arc pretty much uh, is directly the opposite of Emma Stone's. Because Emma Stone starts the movie off as, like, a simpleton and grows up throughout the movie. Like, rapidly, but also she has a lot of experiences and internalizes that and uses that. Mark Ruffalo has a lot of experiences and internalizes that and regresses back to a simpleton by the end. Like, he's never smart, but he starts the movie kind of elegant and ends it with... He literally has one scene where he yells cunt for one full minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He's, um. I mean, he. I, I feel like he's supposed to um, be a stand-in for kind of like, I, I feel like I've seen a couple older movies that do this where, you know, it's like a young, a young woman uh, is, falls in, like is a, uh, attracts the charm of an older an older gentleman who is very rich and like whisks her away. Um, I don't know if you've seen, I think it, is it funny girl with Barbara Streisand? Yeah, we talked about it. Did we talk about, okay. Yeah. That, I think that happens in the city. Like he literally finds a, like a girl he really likes and he takes her away on a boat ride and he's gambling and stuff. Like on second thought that it feels like almost very direct inspiration for this movie because he does the same thing essentially. Oh yeah, he's um, gambling on the boat. I didn't even realize yeah, that connection. And um, so, but but he's essentially playing a satire of that character, where you know anyone, any guy that's uh, well, I guess it's a more modern take where it's like he's an older, he's a much older than her, and he's treating her like a child essentially. But he's whisking her away and intending to marry her, despite the obvious age gap that he acknowledges because he's treating her like a child essentially, right? Well, um, and also, um, and also, despite every single part of that, that being like every part of that, that's his intention is also something that he should know not to do. Like he's whisking her away to marry her immediate on, on the day that she is betrothed. Yeah. 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 Well, I guess he didn't know she was betrothed. Technically he did. I thought he, he like he was no, there he to sign the paperwork. Well, no, I think. Because remember later in the movie, he finds out she's engaged and then he takes that as a huge betrayal too. So I don't know what that contract was. Like maybe, I don't even know. But anyways, um, he, he's a sleazeball essentially. And it's, I guess it's kind of a parody of that old, that old uh, gentleman character from the 50s and 60s. So I, I, and I really enjoyed it. And I think... I think it's just so funny that um, the idea of, you know, she's essentially acting like a child, but she's so pretty that he he assumes she's just very charismatic and different <laughs> and spontaneous. Like, I mean, I, actually, it's not even him. Every character just kind of assumes she's just like, I mean, uh, like she's just direct and like she lives in the moment and uh, she's rude, but like in a, in a cool way, you know, whereas he, when, when essentially she's literally just a child um, doing whatever she wants in, yeah, in the body of a woman. There's a scene in this where they go to a fancy dinner and she start and like, 
she just doesn't respond to anything correctly. Like one of the, uh, the person that they're talking to starts, um, you know, starts talking about, Oh, I can't remember. I don't think she starts talking about anything. Uh, Bella just starts talking about sex and like, I think someone makes an innuendo and she starts just ex- takes, takes that as like a license to just explicitly yeah. talk about her sex life. And he has yeah. to like take her away and go, you can't do that in polite society. And she's like, I don't like polite society. How come we yeah. have to be in it? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I mean, I think it's, it's refreshing. It's kind of eye opening for us and refreshing for the characters in the movie, just because it's like, the, I think the movie kind of shines a light on. There's so many random things that, you know, we just do because it's part of like what we, what we're growing up to learn, you know? And, yeah. and she just kind of, cause, cause she's being treated like an adult, but as a child, she can just be like, this is stupid. And then people will be like, wow, no, she's like, if she was a child saying that, they'd be like, oh, you just don't know better. But because she looks like an adult, um, everyone's like, oh, she's like really smart. She's ahead of the curve, you know? And I think that's I think just a very like- fun realization. But I think it's also kind of important for the audience that, like, the actual reasoning is that she doesn't know better. Like, sure, she could be ahead of the curve, but, like, if she was a character who, like, understood polite society and decided to rebel against it, it would not work as well as her being a character who literally doesn't know what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Because I think the the fact that she's not actively she's just rebelling because that's who she is yeah you know which i think is a lot more fun and again it also kind of uh it just it makes the mark ruffalo character so funny just because he's he's so enamored by someone that (laughs) that's essentially a child but he's like you know he he, because he's he's playing this cocky guy the whole movie and just seeing his downfall is just really funny. Yeah. And actually, speaking of that dynamic where, like, she is sort of, she looks like she's rebelling against polite society, but it's actually just because she doesn't know better. It does make the later parts of the movie work a lot better, where she mm-hmm. is basically grown up. And at that point, she, um, you know, she doesn't do things like, like, she no longer rebels in the way of getting up from the chair to go dance because she'd rather be dancing she does things like oh you don't treat servers very well you probably Mm -hmm. should and like she starts being a lot more nuanced and pointed in her critiques of society once she's experienced enough of it to have to actually form opinions on like social customs i guess yeah well we do yeah we do see a I mean, at, at the start of the movie, she's literally like, I don't even think she talks, um, but it, it's cool seeing her progress. And I think she, because of uh, her essentially being thrust into society and then also like everyone treating her differently because she looks like an adult, um, she de- she gets to learn the world in a much more... Uh, I want to say efficient way, you know, like she, she sees the, she sees the darkness of the world. Um, and uh, I, I, I just want to say she learns very quickly, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Cause she's approaching it from a very pure angle, even though it technically takes her down some dark roads, but it's like, she's so young in her head that she doesn't realize she's going down a dark road. So she literally doesn't care. Yeah, so she just follows it to its end to see what happens. Yeah, and, and then she just... Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say she keeps finding success, but it just keeps kind of working out for her, technically, you know? It gives her a lot of experiences that she ends up building on very efficiently. Yeah. Like, like uh, in the third act, we see her become um, a prostitute. And... That that is quite that is quite an interesting third act to go to, to go down, um, mm. but it was and it, there's a lot of very graphic stuff going on, um, but I guess it's just interesting how I like I don't I don't think there's any commentary happening, but she's literally just like, well, I want money, so I'm gonna have sex for money, and then she just does it. 
And mm-hmm. uh, again, I don't think the director's trying to say anything, but it's just like a very, it's just funny. Like only her character can really approach it from that angle. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting. Cause it's like, it's, it's maybe the most non-judgmental like depiction of sex work I can think of because like she comes at it from the perspective of she needs money and it's a good way to get it. Like it's not that she is extremely down on her luck and she's been forced into a business that she wants to, that she doesn't want to be in or that she is extremely enthusiastic about sex work for whatever reason. Like Mm -hmm. there's it's, it's coming at sex work from a place of, like, I don't see any bias. I know there must be some, but I don't know what it is. Like, it's yeah. a very, it's a very, it's a very clinical view of sex work, actually. Yeah. Like to to use that word from the beginning again. Which I guess comes from her her father because <laughs> he has yeah. a very clinical view on everything. So, um, it's cool seeing that influence kind of change affect her life and and how she views it. Um, which is I think is. I don't know if like there's like, really a anything to learn from the movie, but I just think it's kind of cool. I think what you could take from it is that like it's all about your perspective on things, um, mm-hmm. and also other people's perspectives. Because again, if if she was literally a child, everyone would have treated her like treated what she was uh, treated all her words with disrespect, essentially. Because be like she's just a kid, you know. But because mm-hmm. they assume she was an adult, all of a sudden it's like. It's like mind, mind blowing knowledge and uh, confidence, if that makes sense. So, yeah. So, uh, what did you think of the performances in this movie? Like, let's zero in a little bit more on those performances. Uh, I thought Emma Stone was good. Like, again, I didn't like it at first, but once I got the context, it made a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought she did a great job of slowly maturing throughout the movie whereas like by the end i was like oh like she's basically like an adult now um even though yeah there was never a point where i was like i was processing it but i kind of it was like subconsciously i was acknowledging that she was growing as a person it was like interesting because there was one speech that she has at the end which isn't quite a monologue she's talking to christopher abbott's character who i guess we haven't really talked about but we'll get there she's talking to about to christopher abbott's character and it just sort of clicked halfway through the dialogue that she was having with him that like this is just not a dialogue she could have delivered at the beginning not because of the experiences that she's learned along the way but because she's literally speaking at him like an adult and like yeah. talking about her past and using big words and like it's a very eloquent conversation that she's having, um, which like comes up so naturally that halfway through that conversation it clicked to me. But she'd been doing that for like an hour at that point. Like yeah, she it, it's such a natural progression and a natural her growing up that like you don't even notice it. Yeah, it's, it's it's masterfully done, and um, I think I don't know. I I don't like. I I think it's hard to judge a performance like this in terms of how because I I think it's it's not it's obviously not a very nuanced performance at first. Um, so it, it feels very like oh, this is obviously like how do I say it? It it feels like it was made to win an Oscar. If that makes sense in some ways, but also like it is a very good performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of goes both ways. And I think you can say that about a lot of like Willem Dafoe in this movie is amazing. Um, I mean, that man, I don't know. Has he won an Oscar yet? I don't think so. Right. I think he's been nominated a couple of times, but I don't think man he's needs won. an Oscar. He's, I feel like I've, it's crazy. The run he's been on for the past few years. I feel like every time I've seen him, he's, he's just doing really, really good. He's been uh, nominated I mean, he, four times, but he has yeah. not won. He's got to win. He's got to win at least one. I don't know if it's for this movie. Um, because, again, I think, I mean, I I have a feeling maybe him and Mark Ruffalo might be competing for a spot there. I and thought also, that as it's much gonna be as tight. he was. Yeah. And they got Robert Downey Jr. in there, too, probably. 
I thought that like as much as Willem Dafoe was very good in this role, he was, uh, and this is this is a good thing, but I felt like he was a very Willem Dafoe character. Willem Dafoe, unlike oh, Mark sure. Ruffalo, plays a lot of characters, like a lot of <laughs> yeah. strange characters, and this yeah. was one of them. And I think yeah. he was very good at this, but against other Willem Dafoe performances, it's like. It's good, but it's no the lighthouse, for example. Yeah. yeah. I, I I just think his character didn't have him much to do either, like after the mm-hmm. first twenty minutes or something. Yeah. Um you know what? He this movie also reminds me a lot of Pinocchio. He's basically Doctor he's Geppetto or something, whatever his name is. In yeah, basically. Where uh you know, he's important for the first little bit just to introduce um the character to the world but after that he's he's largely largely irrelevant until the end mm-hmm. um which is kind of unfortunate because i i think there was more there but also like i don't think that he needed more screen time either because i don't know what else they could have done with his character i really liked him and rami yusuf max mccandles uh mm-hmm. dynamic in this but i think that uh i think that rami yusuf's characters um character progression worked really well weirdly enough in part because it was mostly off screen because Rami Yusuf starts the movie like he's a university student so he is you know he is like pretty old at that point all things considered he's definitely grown up is what I want to say at the beginning but he does a lot of maturing through the movie too where the Rami Yusuf at the very beginning or the Max, Max McCandles at the beginning of the movie is very different from the Max McCandles at the end of the movie in mm. like very important ways. And I think that a lot of weirdly enough, I don't think I want to see most of that progression on screen. I thought, I think that the fact that a lot of it was off screen and he was just like getting letters about what Bella was doing um, made that particular way that that character progressed work really well yeah well i i think he needs like i i once you take um emma stone bella bella baxter out of the equation there's not much for him to do either you know his his character kind of relies on everyone else's character because he's kind of the straight man and also he was our uh audience surrogate to get us mm-hmm. in, into the movie. But um, past that, his, he also doesn't really have too much control over the narrative of the movie. Even though I do yeah. kind of like, like you said, the off, the off screen growth and like his, uh, the, the one, the, when we touch into their story once in a while, it's kind of cute too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I thought he was good. I don't, I, I just, I, I think him and him and Willem Dafoe definitely, didn't get as much. So maybe they probably won't be uh, up for supporting Oscars. Like you said, maybe Willem Dafoe. Possibly. Possibly. But like Mark Ruffalo though, I think that he's like, I mean, him and Emma Stone are clearly the big stars of this movie. And Mark Mm. Ruffalo is awesome in this movie. I mean, we've already talked about him a little (laughs) bit. This is Mark Ruffalo playing a hell of a character but I think he's incredible in this. I have never seen Mark Ruffalo like this. And man, when he, when he got on screen, I was like immediately sold. And then basically every scene he was in, he's just such a, he's such a charismatic scumbag. Like you hate him, but you want him to be around. Yeah. There's so many moments that, He's great. Like the the one scene where he's just fighting people at the dance was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scene where he, I think he finds out Bella was has just been casually slept with someone. And he didn't know it. He's like hitting his head on the bar <laughs> and stuff. Um, there's just so much. There's so much play. There's so much fun from his character. Um, it's probably. It's I. I think. I think it's probably my favorite performance this year, from what I can tell, off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked it, and I, I think that's kind of where the movie faltered is when he, he left the movie. I think it kind of struggles to keep my interest as much, um, especially once we get to the. I'd, I'd say kind of like the third plot man because I want to say it's like 
at first the person controlling him is her dad and then it becomes Mark Ruffalo and then the past comes back and it's Christopher Abbott's character. No, it's Christopher Abbott play no Christopher it Abbott. Christopher Abbott, yeah. Uh playing Al- Alfie Blessington, who is was married to based kind of her mother in a way. Like married the to body. The body the person. Yeah. He's married <laughs> Such to the a body. Weird way to say it. He's married to the person that committed suicide, which allowed for Bella Baxter to exist. And I just didn't like his I thought I, I to be fair, I think the writing for him kind of faltered, but what I liked about Mark Ruffalo's performance is that he was a scumbag, but it was very interesting to watch. You know, he was funny, it was dark, he was he was manipulative, he was clumsy, like there was so much there, right? Um mm-hmm. it felt like once once Alfie Blessington comes in, the movie kind of wants to be over, but they were like, we need to, we need her to confront her past. And it's a little bit of an epilogue. Yeah. And I think because of that, the script kind of economizes him as just a very basic bland character because they need to finish the movie. Um, He's like, he's like cartoonishly evil, but with the emphasis on the evil part, like anything that you could think of that would be the evil thing to do in that situation, he will do. But when I say cartoonishly evil, like he's not actually that cartoonish where Mark Ruffalo is cartoonish. And so, you know, when you get rid of when Mark Ruffalo gives way to Christopher Abbott, you lose a lot of the energy that was there, like almost yeah. all of it, actually. Yeah. Which I I was kind of surprised by because it, it felt like the character philosophy in the movie when right for writing the characters was like everyone's just weird, like they're very gray morally. I mean, and you could almost arguably like very terrible people, but um, they're still entertaining to watch just because you never know what to expect from them. And Christopher Abbott was there was no comedy. You know, even the side characters, I, there's this one scene I loved where there's, I think Emma Stone's asking for when they're going to reach the next stop. And they use, they use the, a sailor killing a bird with his bare hands um, because the bird shit on him as the expositional character to say, oh, we're going to land in three days or something. Um, and right. it's a hilarious character and it's just so offbeat, but it's a great way. It's just like, that's what you expect every character in this movie to just be just crazy wacky at that point, you yeah. know? So to just kind of end the movie with Christopher Abbott's character, just being like, he's evil. And like you said, it's kind of like, he's like, he has a gun and he, he bullies his servants. And it's like, it's, it felt like it was trying to be funny and wacky, but it was just kind of weird. I don't know if it was trying to be funny or wacky because the more we talk about it, the more I'm thinking like, I think that, like, that's where the movie tries to get real, briefly. Because, like, he's, even his area, like, most of the sets of this movie, we haven't talked too much about the production design, but most of the production design of this movie is, like, fantastical. They go to Lisbon, Portugal, and it looks like Wonderland. Like, it doesn't look like a real place. They go to Christopher Abbott's mansion and it looks like a mansion in dreary England with a dude who lives in it. Like it is as, as, as real as this movie gets is that last act where you've just got Christopher Abbott who is very evil, but he's very evil in the most realistic way of any of the characters here. And like, he lives in the place that is closest to looking like the real world. And it's the most that Bella has to reckon with like a real world injustice portrayed as realistically as it gets in this movie. Again, it's still a little bit absurd because this movie never gets like, it never gets DMV levels of real, but it's like the, the closest it gets to anything close to like a period piece or historicity or anything like that is at the very end in that Christopher Abbott epilogue. I mean, I'd like, I see your point. 
I guess I think they could have done it better because the resolution to that plot line was very fantastical. True. Um, in terms of, you know, they literally, I think they implant a goat brain in his body or something. Is Spoilers. the implication? Spoilers. <laughs> um, but so, like, I could see, I think I could see that if there was much more of a tonal shift where you could be like, because I, part of me was wondering, like, I wonder if Lisbon is actually like that or just because she's in the mind, she has the head of an eight, five to eight year old. I guess she's growing up while this is happening, mm-hmm. um, that she's just viewing it this way and we're kind of capturing her imagination. So you could argue like the last part of the movie is like, you know, her, she's grown up and things seem less fantastical. Um, but I don't feel the movie emanating that, if that makes sense. Um, especially with the resolution of that. If it ended a lot more darkly or there was like a mo- lot more realistic of a conflict there, then I think you could argue that it, it served the movie. But in my opinion, it didn't. I don't know. I feel like the resolution does kind of play into that though as well. Because even though the resolution is more fantastical, it's not, it's less explicitly realistic. Um, like the way that she resolves the plot line where she essentially, I mean, to sort of sum up what I was saying earlier, uh, where she essentially goes to the real world, like to sum up that plot line, the resolution for that is bringing Christopher Abbott back to her fantastical level, essentially like sort of, Mm. she regresses a little bit by being like, actually this real world is bad. I reject this reality and let's go yeah. back to my own and then start, let's, let's rewind a bit and then start again. Yeah. Kind of, uh, she's, she's taking, she's taking, re-taking control and be like, no, this is my world. Kind of like yeah. she did at the start of the movie, I guess. Okay. I guess I kind of see that. Um, I still don't really like Christopher. <laughs> no, for sure. He's, he's the first entry on our hall of shame for a reason. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, otherwise, like, I don't know. I thought Margaret Qualley, I thought it was just funny. I remember when I w- looked up the movie at first, she was second build on Google, I guess, because a lot of people Google her name, but it turns out <laughs> she had like kind of like like a minute of screen time and it was just all her kind of doing really stupid shit, too. It was wild at the end when I saw her name flash across the screen and it wasn't like, and it it wasn't top build but it was when they were like going through the main actors and she was flashed across the screen i'm like why did they get margaret qualley and give her that role like it's very funny but she's this is essentially a cameo yeah i I don't think she has a single word line no she does no she does does speak words not many of them but she does i think there's one where she uh she calls Emma Stone like the old bitch is back or something many times or something like that. <laughs> I just, I can't imagine hearing like, cause I don't, she's, I mean, she's been in some big movies, but I feel like she, she hasn't really had like a starring, big starring role yet. She was what in I can a tell. movie called, uh, she was in a movie called Sanctuary, which was like one of my favorite movies of last year. Oh, okay, um, cool. And I think came out on Hulu this year. Anyway, it sort of came out and then got it, it got dumped onto streaming and not and yeah. wasn't like um, promoted basically at all. But yeah. uh, if anyone can see Sanctuary, go see it because it is so good, and it has Christopher Abbott in it actually in a good role. Oh, He's very good yeah. in it. <laughs> Margaret Qualley carries the movie, but Christopher Abbott is very good in it, and it's just those two. So it's an interesting um, dynamic. Yeah, I think I think just being like, like hearing, oh, you're gonna share the screen with Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe, and be like, oh great, what am I doing? Uh, you're just gonna kind of, they're gonna throw balls at you and you won't catch them. Try to catch them, but don't try too hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Other, other than that, like, I mean, great cast, filmed very interestingly. I like the set design and stuff. It was all really well done. Um, and uh, yeah, great, great vision from the director. I don't, did he write it? I mean, no, this is actually based on a book, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Uh, it's based on the book, nice. Poor Things, 
Episodes from the Early Life of Archibald McCandless, MD, uh, Scottish Public Health Officer, which is by Alasdair Gray. And as I am not aware of another Alasdair Gray novel that has been adapted to a movie, but he wrote a lot and he recently passed away and he was writing for like 20 years, 20, 25 years. Like he he must have, there must be other adaptations of his stuff, but I've read some, like I've read some plot synopses of some of the movies, some of the books that he read. And I want to learn more about this guy. Like I want to, I want to read some of those books. They, they sound very, very cool and very like weird, which is not surprising from this, like considering this movie is based on one of his novels. Yeah. That's cool. I think, um, I think, director really well done i think the script could have used some tweaks in my opinion um i think one one of the one of the core i mean it's not a huge it's a great movie but one of the one thing that i think troubled me was how there's not really like an end goal it's just the movie just kind of happens you know Mm -hmm. um and i feel like emma stone Bella is just kind of wandering through the movie and doing stuff and it's fun to watch you know but um like I I think a great I don't know if I compared it to Forrest Gump already but you did um I did okay (laughs) so but for Forrest Gump I think he's doing a lot of crazy stuff but you kind of have that that end goal of like uh well first of all the movie starts with you you're kind of curious as to where it ends because you want to know why he's sitting on that bench. But then also there's just that through line of like, he wants to be with Jenny. Yeah. And um, it's something it's, he, he goes on all this wacky stuff, but there's always that kind of emotional through line for the whole movie. Whereas this movie, like and I never really felt too much of a connection between her and her um, fiance technically, or her and her father figure. Um, so and 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 then I think they could have had something with the Christopher Abbott character, but um, I think that was just kind of thrown away because, like, I think I think there could have been something very interesting with her being reunited with her father, real father slash husband. You know, like, um, there's there was there could have been something interesting there, you know, and. And a, a good way for the movie to kind of climax and end truly, but uh, I think it's just kind of thrown away, and the movie just kind of keeps going until it, until she, until she settles back home, you know. Mm. And I think not again, not a huge problem, but I think if they had that, this movie could have been like very close to perfect for me. I um, yeah, I I think I see what you're saying. I. Uh... I, I mostly disagree about the ending. I think that the ending, like, it's not perfect, I guess, but I think that the ending does what it sets out to do very well. It's, like, her overcoming her past, um, a past that she isn't a part of, but, like, still mm-hmm. kind of reckoning with it. And I think that it's a very good sort of, it's a very good way to sort of sum up the rest of the movie up until that point. Um, and... I don't know. Maybe there was a better way to do that when she's reunited with Christopher Abbott, but I thought that what was there was uh, was very effective, and like mm. it was um, it was maybe a little longer than I would have expected, but uh, I think so. I don't know. Maybe it could have been condensed a little bit, but I thought that uh, I thought it was it, it was a good like little cap to the movie. Fine, we disagree. <laughs> let it be. Um, cool. I don't know if there's anything else. Touch on. Um, no, I think I think this movie is going to come up again because uh, we've oh, already sure. talked about it. Like, or it's it's already been nominated for seven Golden Globes. Uh, yeah. I think at the Golden Globes. Um, I believe Willem Dafoe was nominated at the Golden Globes. Yes. Willem Dafoe and Mark Ruffalo both got nominations at the Golden Globes. So nice. like it's not impossible that Willem Dafoe could make it in at the at the Oscars. But uh I would I would be 
surprised to see Willem Dafoe there and tough. not Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, the um, the Oscars because I guess I'm guessing they were nominated for best comedy. Yeah, actors, right? Yeah, so going to be a little tighter in the Oscars. Um, I, I, I genuinely, I think Mark Ruffalo is going to make room there for sure. Yeah, I was going to say if one of them falls away, it's Willem Dafoe. Yeah. I would be a little surprised if both of them fall away because Mark yeah. Ruffalo is like actually phenomenal in this. Yeah, I never thought I'd say I, I'd be upset seeing Willem Dafoe take Mark Ruffalo's place in the Oscar nominations, but I think I would be this time. I mean, the thing is, too, Willem Dafoe was in, what, three or four different movies this year, and I don't mm. know how many he's going to be in next year. I would assume it's going to be three or four, and probably mm. at least one of those is going to be an Oscar-worthy performance. He'll get there. He'll get it. It'll yeah, happen. Yeah, he's good. He's only, he's only growing his, his brand. Every soon yeah. everyone will know Willem Dafoe. <laughs> yeah, young, young little upstart Willem Dafoe. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess the last thing we got to say is, uh, putting a number on poor things. What do you think? Uh, it's great. I, I give it an eight. Definitely one oh. of the more exciting movies this year. And, uh, do you think that, uh, do you think that it redeems Christopher Abbott or are we going to have to watch another Christopher Abbott movie to redeem Christopher Abbott? We need another one. I don't think. <laughs> All right. Dude, this is probably the only thing I didn't like about this movie. So. Got it. Sorry, Christopher Abbott. <laughs> you know what? That's okay. Christopher Abbott can come on our show and tell us his favorite performance of his so that we know the right one. So Christopher Abbott, Perfect. if you're listening to this, uh, you're invited. Just call me up. You've got my number, I'm sure. Just, you know, we'll make it happen. Ooh. Um, Yeah, I would agree. I would say this is like a solid eight for me. I... I don't know. Maybe if I watch it again, it could change. But like, I'm I'm pretty confident in that eight. Like, yeah. I think there's. I I think that's I think that's a good spot for it. Yeah, I agree. Not a very rewatchable movie either. I might say so. I don't know if I'm, I'm gonna rewatch. Sure, yeah. I'd rewatch I mean, not... maybe the Mark Ruffalo scenes, and that's <laughs> <laughs> the scene they have in the tra- they have the scene in the trailer where he goes Bella. So maybe you can just rewatch the trailer. Perfect. Um, yeah. All right. Well, there's poor things. And what's our last word? Bella.